Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, citizens of nowhere, and welcome to the 365 Days Later edition of Romaniacs, the Brexit podcast for everyone who won't just shut up and get over it. I'm Dorian Linsky, and it's a special edition this week because we're not actually here. Taking a break from the chaos of the last few weeks, we've done what all good members of the metropolitan media elite always do at the end of June. I'm in Glastonbury, and so is Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk. Hello, Ian. Are you looking forward to this escape? Uh, yeah, you know, so I'm in Glastonbury right now, by the time someone's listening to this, which means I think I'm pretty being quite miserable in a field. I'm not, I've never been to Glastonbury before, and I don't even really want to go. I just want to have gone, and therefore I'm going. So I just want to make it... to the week after when you can say you have gone. Yeah. yeah. This time next week, yeah. I will be someone who has been to Glastonbury, and I'm very much looking forward to that. The actual experience of sleeping in a tent, not so much. And uh, while we're in Somerset, our Romaniacs colleague, Peter Collins, will be at the... <laughs> Tory Glastonbury, Dubai. Indeed, yes. I'll be sipping cocktails in a luxury hotel in Dubai, hoping that maybe Gary Newman might be doing a set in in the bar or something. (laughs) Have have you ever had the urge to go to Glastonbury? Well, I did go to Glastonbury for one day once in the late 80s, I think it would have been. Um, I foolishly thought I could just meet up with my friends. and uh, Of course, this was the days before mobile phones. I thought, I'll just drift in, I'll find them. And of course, seven or eight hours later, as it's getting dark and there's some obscure indie band playing in the background, I think I'm never going to find these people. So I watched some bands I'd never heard of, uh, tried to sleep a bit in the field and then went home the next morning it was a bit of a failure not bad I've, I've heard of worse this is not just our week off it is of course the 12-month anniversary of the eu referendum which put us in this mess in the first place so we thought we'd look back see what we were doing ourselves and how we felt at the time and if there are any lessons we should have learned on the day it all went wrong firstly let's talk about the actual day of the results the referendum was on 23rd of june and the results came out in the small hours of the 24th um, I was actually at Glastonbury then. I remember having a lovely dance in a tent and coming out and just being like, this is brilliant, isn't it? And then my mate looked at his phone and went, ooh, Sunderland. <laughs> and suddenly, like, the mood crashed. But because I was very, very buoyant, arguably complacent, I was like, no, it can't happen for many reasons, not least because it would ruin Glastonbury. Um, and then went back and met some other friends. And the look on their faces was just apocalyptic and I was like but maybe and they just went no it's over we're fucked everybody went to bed and then the whole of the next day was just this this weird traumatizing thing and I couldn't even get into the festival until like the evening where it's all like savages excellent example of Anglo-French cooperation that band (laughs) and they managed to sort of like blast me out of my my black mood I managed to kind of you know get on with things but it, it, it was the most until Trump's election <laughs> was you know arguably the most sort of the, the most dismaying political event and 
Where were you, Peter? Well, uh, on um, um, referendum day, I was at home waiting for my sister and brother-in-law to come along. And I've got four sisters and four brothers-in-law, so I'll, I'll keep it a secret um, who, who, which ones they were, because they said to me when they arrived, I'd already gone out and voted to remain, of course, so had my partner, and they said, well, we're really surprised that other members of the family are going to vote Brexit, and they're really, really quite vehement about it and we've had to keep a little bit quiet that we're, we're, we're going to be quiet remainers and so on and that was you know gave me some hope that maybe there'd be more quiet remainers out there who were letting their relatives go on about how terrible bendy banana rules are and stuff like that and how the EU was wicked and so on and hopefully the the quiet remainers would come out in force and as I went to bed I heard somebody predicting on the radio that well it looks like the remain might just have squeaked squeaked it so I went to bed a happy man and then woke up the next morning and thought what <laughs> incredible and Ian same I was asleep we were doing shifts at work so you know I had guys covering overnight I had to wake up and I just woke up and there was like 250 messages on my phone <laughs> the first one I saw was my friend at 2am going the first message was just Ian Ian wake up bad things are happening <laughs> and I just, as soon as I saw that I was like oh that's it it's it's gone and just the bottom fell out of me. I just, I couldn't, at first sight, I, just, I couldn't comprehend what I was looking at. I was so completely startled. It was in like a really weird journey for me. God, I hate it when people use that word journey as a metaphor for their thoughts. But like, I have no particular love for the EU. I completely understand the arguments on sovereignty. I've never had that view that that's somehow just some posh man's word that people don't understand. I think people do get that. And that there's always a danger of, of an instinct towards centralising power at a continental level rather than devolving it down to a local one. I've never had a great big love for it. And yet, over the course of that campaign, as you saw that this was a vehicle for some of the most reactionary impulses in this country, basically personified by Farage in front of that poster, my first thought that morning waking up and seeing it was, OK, we're about to enter into a really dangerous period. And that wasn't about trade and it wasn't about constitutional issues. It was about something really toxic and poisonous, the really dark, ugly, slimy things under the rock coming crawling up into the daylight now that they think it's okay. And that's what we saw for 12 months. We saw the most staggering retreat of the decent values of this country, of the openness of this country, something that only now we start to see some degree of protection from. And I remember that was the thing that I had that day. Well, well, I remember this talk- is dangerous. I remember talking to friends and also um, hearing some statements from bands on stage that do not normally talk about this kind of stuff. People like, you know, the 90s. 1975 and Bastille and churches and you know mm. not not protesting it and one of the things I kept hearing was like this is not the country I thought it was <laughs> and particularly I know being in Glastonbury and it's this kind of it, it is a kind of like I imagine if Glastonbury voted it would be very remain <laughs> but of course that part of the country was was leave and there was this feeling that even just looking around at these sort of beautiful rolling fields and that that connection that Glastonbury has with sort of Englishness yeah. and I felt profoundly alienated from the country and my sense of what the country was and perhaps that was my own sort of naivety and it was it was always that but I I think that was it that was where it felt quite existential it wasn't I wasn't worrying about the repeal of you know certain regulations or what are we going to do about the customs union It, it really was this kind of like sort of cultural psychic shock which I think is obviously how it was interpreted elsewhere as well that so many people when Trump was elected were saying Trump and Brexit, Trump and Brexit. And these were different, on, on paper, these were completely different votes. But culturally, they felt like part of the same sort of toxic wave that, that I didn't see 
coming. It's funny, you know, like patriotism is this thing that you go back to emotionally, you know, many times a day. You look out of a bus and I see like a nice little sort of cobblestone street with a with a red uh, post box in it. And that gives me a wave of patriotism. And suddenly, as you say, that thing of the rolling English field, which is a representation of where is my sort of mental safe space, that your sort of patriotic place, that, that safety to me, associating those English sort of uh, symbols with something that was actually quite exclusive felt very, very sort of strange and alienating to me. Like, like yeah, I, I sound very, very English. My mum is actually, you know, Guatemalan of Lebanese descent. So I was brought up, you know, very English in Hampshire, but still with an awareness of you are sort of immigrant. You know, you come from an immigrant family. That was part of my identity. And what I loved about Britain was the sense of it being open, that it wasn't like Japan, another country that sort of geographically isn't relatively similar to us, but has always closed itself off in terms of immigration and often in terms of ideas. That Britain was always open to trade and to ideas and to people. And suddenly having that being so aggressively questioned was these constant little moments of where you would otherwise have had a patriotic moment or a feeling of love for England were sort of denied to me and it took me months to try and build that up again to try and be able to feel it once more and it's it's it's, it's only in retrospect uh, from the day after the re- referendum that you look at how uh, you know, the, 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 this, this thing has been bubbling up, bubbling up, bubbling up for quite a long time. Remember, go back to when the referendum party was set up and when then to when John Major was cursing the bastards in the in the in the Eurosceptic ranks of the Conservative Party. Euroscepticism was this tiny, wee, cranky little corner uh, of, of politics. And the day of the referendum, it became the mainstream. It's, you know, mm. it, but it did. If you, it's easier to see now in retrospect, the way it built up and built up and built up. And it became more and more acceptable to repeat the anti-EU rhetoric that we kept hearing. People were always saying it, but it was a, a small number of people. Then it was a slightly larger number of people. And then eventually, you know, you're suddenly finding that people you didn't imagine would ever repeat this kind of stuff about the bendy banana rule or whatever are repeating it. Some of the members of my family who voted leave were the daughters of a Polish-Jewish immigrant, you know, who had been able to build a life here after the Second World War. And they it just they couldn't join the dots. And so I felt like, I mean, I was lucky that my, my mum voted Remain, but I know a lot of people just had these for quite a long time afterwards, you know, the first sort of family barbecue or whatever. And there was just this huge unspoken thing that you that you couldn't talk about. And again, a sense of sort of alienation, even uh, you know, within families. And I do think it was, I think it was traumatic. I mean, there are certain political events which are traumatic and you can actually see that. I remember that in the press coverage that I, I didn't, I tried to avoid reading anything over the weekend and tried to have fun. But I picked up The Observer on the way home and on the train on, on Monday. I was just reading article after article and there was not, there was a general sense of just sort of, trauma there were whole articles by very very clever people where there wasn't really much analysis it was just like a bad thing has happened <laughs> you know and that was what it was and i was trying to go what what happens next obviously now i realize that nobody knew mm. so it was okay that nobody knew right then but that was the feeling it was it was a huge emotional shock before it was all of the other things that obviously we discuss on the podcast all the kind of implications and then what happens is it's not just the open closed stuff but lots of other sort of assumptions that you have about your country and i love the fact that britain was a country that was stable and i accepted that idea that at the core of a free country is stability that allows you to plan your life that you feel like you're safe that you feel like no one with some raging ideological bugbear is going to start taking away you know your ability to have nicer stuff and to get on and you know go along 
And actually, that suddenly came into question. This sense that Britain was self-deprecating and that it didn't go in for this chest-thumping stuff that I was aware of, ironically, mostly from Europeans. You'd see it much more with Italians. Suddenly, that was being put into question. And the British sense of humour, which, as you say, on the leave front. Exactly. And on the stability point, there will have been a lot of people... Um, who um, feel that the voting system in Britain is unfair, the the first-past-the-post system, but are prepared to say, all right, it produces stability, at least we don't have crises and instability and governments falling and hung parliaments and stuff like that, at least we get a nice clear result and somebody is able to run the government for the next five years. If that's now not the case, I'm just wondering whether the case for, you know, sort of electoral reform might actually grow in the wake of this, that people say, actually, there are stable countries that have coalitions. Uh, We haven't done so well recently in uh, having the the first-past-the-post system produce stability. We've we've got another hung parliament, um, you know, need two elections from the last one. So maybe we ought to look again at the assumption that we have to have first-past-the-post. What do you think? I really hope that we do look at it again. I just, I, I think that you're always stuck in that problem, aren't you? Of just whoever it is that's in a position to reform it will only have gotten into that position by virtue of the existing system, and therefore it will never be in their interest to do so. I mean, Tony Blair used to, you know, sort of held out the candle with that kind of stuff, and as soon as he was in power, he wouldn't do it. Jeremy Corbyn, who, you know, there is no crazy idea he will not vouch for. Nevertheless, even he doesn't go ahead with this sort of stuff. So I just, it's very hard to change a system in that way, as we've seen. I still think the chances of it happening are very low, even though I would want it to take. But I think that point you make about looking again at these quite fundamental things is that there's so many assumptions that I've grown up with. It's been the same with this election recently. You know, well, the Tories, they're very good at pulling together and holding on to power. They stand for stability. It's the economy that's going to convince people. All of this stuff that I thought was true about politics has been proven not true. So I'm kind of looking again at everything. We're going to talk about the reasons why in a minute, but first here's one of our recent guests, Ardent Remainer and former Lib Dem parliamentary candidate Naomi Smith, on what she experienced on Referendum Results Apocalypse Day. So during the day, uh, I had been out in the rain. It was torrential rain in London. uh, And I was standing outside Warren Street tube station, handing out reminders to go and vote, shouting, uh, sod the rain, go vote, remain, right up till the polls closed. I was there. uh, And then I ended up going to the official party for the Britain Stronger in Europe campaign. I was uh, photographed. Uh, You might have seen the photograph. It went everywhere. There was two guys sort of with their their heads in their hands. There was another guy looking into the middle distance and there was a woman who was just sort of turning away from the cameras because her her eyes were filled with tears and that was me and it went on the front page of the bill that was in the Sunday Times. The reason why that photo got taken was because we were sort of four nerds watching the results come in uh, and we knew when the Sunderland result came in that Remain wasn't far enough ahead for nationally to for us to have done it so people were still celebrating behind us remember Farage had practically conceded at 11 o'clock uh, so you know we still had Will Straw and, and and people like that wandering around the party looking quite buoyant but there was a, a guy with a camera who knew that the four of us had clocked something that the rest of the party hadn't which was why they took that snap when they did but that was pretty early on in the night that it got taken it was before midnight and I then got in a cab and went home because I didn't want to be surrounded by people as my heart broke the fact that it, it kept getting recycled was the worst thing because you sort of couldn't get over it. Um, so any time I started to feel better, I'd then get a message from a friend or former colleague from somewhere around the world saying, oh, I saw you again today. The the Independent used it again on their blog or, you know, uh, some Australian network has just flashed it up in, in regards to Brexit. So, yeah, the face of disaster. Who wouldn't want to be the face <laughs> of disaster? 
it got me into US Vogue though, so not all bad. But yeah, yeah, that's where I was and sort of reeling from it and, and feeling very, very depressed. But actually having never felt prouder to be a Londoner. Hi, I'm John Nevin, author of Kill Your Friends, Straight White Male and other novels. And this time last year, I was waking up in a Winnebago at Glastonbury to the news that the the Leave campaign had won the referendum and spent the next few hours wandering around, as you can imagine, at Glastonbury, very stunned groups of young people who, who couldn't believe it. Obviously, we were in a bit of an echo chamber there, to say the least. But when we'd gone to bed, which must have been about 2 a.m. or so, um, Farage had just made his sort of defeatist speech of he thought it was over. And then I think an hour after we went to bed, Sunderland came in with the big upset that that had gone leave. And then by the time we woke up, so 8 o'clock-ish the next morning, the full horror was just dawning. So it was very strange few hours that morning. My son was there, of course, he was like 19, I think, it's second glass in Britain, yeah. As you can imagine, the mood lifted a bit, you go and see bands and you bet it's a bit like, um, it's almost like something you had died and you forget it for a couple of hours and then suddenly you remember and it's, oh God, that, it was, you know, I, I, you just felt so bad seeing young people, no way to say, to say this without sounding patronising, but young people who had had their futures potentially completely shafted by a bunch of vicious, you know, um, simple-minded coffin dodgers. <laughs> so that was Naomi Smith and John Niven with some golden memories. So why do we think the vote went the way it did? I mean, I read Tim Shipman's book, All Out War, which is a kind of exhaustive account of the campaign, and there were so many occasions where there would be somebody saying, well, if, if without this, it could have all been different. And I'm just going to, like, really quickly just give an idea of, of what these were. The timing of the referendum, the phrasing of the question... The failure of the coup to get Dominic Cummings out of vote leave. Aaron Banks' finances. Robert Mercer's data war. Boris Johnson going for leave. Michael Gove going for leave. Vote leave winning the designation, the official designation over leave.eu. Cameron's reluctance to attack fellow Tories. Corbyn. The NHS bus. Strategy, the Remain strategy being based on bad polling. The backfiring of Osborne's punishment budget. And on and on. I mean, that's just like a few of the reasons. And literally there's someone just going, well, if it wasn't for that... It could have gone the other way. And yet at the same time, I almost came out of the book thinking, no, it couldn't. That all the kind of historical momentum, all the energy seemed to be on, on, on leave. And I actually end up thinking, God, yeah, it remained it pretty well to get 48%. And I, I wonder um, what you guys think of, of, of how close could it have been? What are the kind of... Um, what are the things that you think could have made a difference? Well, I have a slightly off-the-wall theory here. It's called the placebo theory of Brexit. So pin back your girls and listen to this. <laughs> there's, as you may know, there's lots of studies that show that placebos do work. You know, you give people a sugar pill, uh, uh, that, you know, it, 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 it does them good, even though there's no active ingredient in it. But interesting, and interestingly, the other day there was a leading surgeon, this guy in Oxford, who pointed out that a lot of small operations are also placebos. They don't actually do any medical good to you, but the patient feels better after because they feel, oh, the, the, the surgeon's been and he's done an incision here and my knee feels better already. Most interesting of all, there was a study recently that found that even when the patient knows it's just a sugar pill, they know it's a placebo, they're told, they're made quite clear, this is just a sugar pill, they still feel better. So the placebo theory of Brexit is that uh, for some Brexit voters, obviously people had different uh, ideas, there was the sense that we know this isn't going to do us any good, but let's just do it anyway. It'll make us feel better. Mm. It's just a way of putting the point that people were wanted to kick out 
uh, against, you know, kick out against the way things are and, you know, upset the apple, apple cart. It's a kind of placebo thing that we know that, you know, it's just a pill. It's not going to do us any good. We didn't even think of the harm it would do us, of course, but it'll make us feel better. Well, that many years after the financial crisis, I think there was a feeling perhaps that the kind of the populist anger, if it was going to arrive, would have arrived by now. And I certainly don't think the dots were joined when Cameron called the referendum, just going, oh, could this become a proxy for all these other kind of resentments to do with, or, or, you know, austerity, which is obviously what the NHS bus lie played on, was mm. frustration about something completely different. Ian, do you think there's, there's things that could have tipped it the other way? Uh, no. I, well, you know what, possibly. But still, ultimately what we're looking at, I think you're alluding to it there, is a bigger historical sweep. And when we look at those books, I mean, Shipman's was, was one, it was by far the best one, and a very, very good book. But, uh, you know, all of the ones that came out talking about the campaign had a very funny thing to them, which is that ultimately, they, because by virtue of writing a book on that subject, you have to treat it as very important, they sort of assumed that that which took place in the campaign explained the vote, that ultimately this big historical moment could be explained by the fact that a guy went to this organisation rather than another or someone came out. But actually, it's got to be bigger than that. There's got to be more to it than that. And I would go back past the financial crisis and she start saying, you know, if you look at, to me, the origins of so much of this is in Iraq. Iraq is the moment that we fundamentally break public trust in the information put out by government. And I think to a lesser extent, the press. So suddenly with that, we don't trust expert stuff that you have all of these guys coming out and going, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you in your pocket, your family. People don't trust it. They don't believe it because 45 minutes and blah, blah, blah. Then you have phone hacking, breaks trust in the rest of the press. You have the financial crisis, breaks trust in, in the banking sector, but also more importantly, in there being any real sense of justice to the way that the economic arrangements of this country are done. And you finally wind up in this moment where, you know, people have been getting poorer for a long time. There's a huge technological change. It means that, that we're actually becoming more tribal and we can easily surround ourselves in views that we already believe in and just mainline our own prejudices back into ourselves. And you get this extraordinary historical moment that we're still in where people will kick the hell out of the system and you could put any proposition towards them and their answer would be I want to kick the hell out of the system that explains Corbyn it explains Macron it explains Trump it explains Brexit that's where we were and of course all of this stuff matters Boris I think especially important having a dual campaign that could do the respectable Brexit on one hand and then the UKIP sort of Brexit on the other hand actually was useful in a way that most political journalists couldn't presume because we always assume that you need one solitary message to win but ultimately it's got to be a bigger story about those historical sweeps that tells us why this took place yeah, and picking up the economic part of that historical sweep yes it, it's everyone expected the effects of the financial crisis you know the political fallout to come a lot sooner but um, the political system as a whole uh, has been saying to people for quite some time, don't worry, you know, we've got to go through this period of austerity, we've got to control public sector wages, we've got to do this, we've got to do this. And it was interesting in the um, election campaign, one or two Conservative candidates saying that on the doorstep, they had people like sort of teachers saying to them, well, you know, I was going to vote for you, but you're telling me I'm going to have another so many years of wage restraint mm. when prices are going up. This is just too much. So people were prepared to get, have patience, you know, that the idea that we need a period of austerity to sort of get the economy back on an even keel after the financial crisis, a lot of people were prepared to buy that. And therefore, that's why you get this very delayed reaction. But what came along with the referendum and now again in the election, I think, is people thinking, we've given this enough time now. We've we, This is why probably will that there will be as even some conservative 
leading figures are saying there will be a relaxation of austerity now, it seems to me, because the patience of people with wage, you know, particularly public sector wage restraint, has been exhausted, I suspect. Yeah, and it's a completely economically illiterate, wasteful thing that we have done for years on end now that has done huge damage to our society, in which, once again, you know, every time... I'm not a Labour guy, but every time you put the Tories in, they destroy our public services. I can't hold against Labour that fundamental truth of how things go. I hear people say, you know, from, from the 1990s, well, at the point that, the, that Blair came in, our hospitals were in an appalling state. Our schools were in an appalling state. And now here we are once more inflicting this on ourselves as a country. And what seems always so funny about the way this country operates is whenever the economy is going well, we elect the left. And whenever it's going badly, we elect the right. And I really do wish that we did it the other way around. And that actually when things are going well, we elect a right-wing government that's actually quite cautious with the national finances. When things are going wrong, we elect a left-wing government that knows that you actually need to do something to stimulate the economy in order to get you out, rather than just cutting away at the arms of the society and then being terribly surprised when it bleeds out. Well, I'd like to talk about a couple of bits of received wisdom at the time. And I know that certainly, uh, as an initial Corbyn supporter, I I turned against him quite badly in during this kind of like very emotional, traumatic, essentially freak out that I think I had, <laughs> you know, f- f- for sort of like a couple of months there. And, and I, you know, you did see the line. Well, if he'd have been more committed, if he'd have been committed as say he, he has been over the last few weeks, um, that would have made a difference. I don't believe that now because of this kind of like constellation of factors mm. and the idea of just going right. It, it was it was him. The other thing that, that I found quite striking was this idea of, of youth turnout. And the, the figures that I saw that I, I sort of looked up was that the young voters, 1824, 64% uh, in the referendum mm. and 58% in this election. Which yes. is not, not quite the narrative. The narrative it? It, yeah. it reminds me of, remember Rock the Vote mm. all those years ago? I can remember after Rock the Vote didn't really rock the vote uh, very much, trying to ring them up uh, from The Economist when I worked there to talk about, um, um, you know, how their campaign, and they didn't want to talk because it hadn't worked. It's it's a great idea, you know, getting everybody who's uh, old enough to vote to go and vote. I mean, everybody should vote always in every election and always vote for the least worst candidate because then the average goes up each time. Mm. However, uh, in practice, it doesn't often happen. Um, you know, what we, what we saw in the election uh, was not uh, apparently a surge of 18, 19 year olds determined to change the system. It was uh, older voters feeling fed up basically with and and, and also reacting to a very bad campaign but on one side and a less bad than expected campaign on the other side. I'm left very suspicious of the kind of first day narratives now and also the idea that there is always one person to blame one group to blame. And, and you're, I think you're right, by the way, in being cautious of the Corbyn stuff. My, my hunch, and I'm not going to even change this because I was saying at the time during the campaign, I actually think Corbyn's approach to it probably chimed with the way that most Brits felt. He wasn't hugely in love with the EU. He was like, well, I'm not a big fan, but I think overall this is not a very sensible way to go. So I actually thought probably that's more in line than someone being an enthusiastic pro-EU, you know, darling. However, what he did in the days afterwards, and really the months afterwards, was unforgivable, which is he refused to realise the severity of the historic circumstance in which he was in, the threat to the working class, to working class jobs, more than anyone. It's the working class and, you know, and people in agriculture who would stand to lose the most. He came out the next day and said we should trigger Article 15 now, which was, I mean, much more stupid than May's position, which in itself is an extraordinary accomplishment. And he then proceeded, I mean, there was people going in to see Emily Thornbury three months after the result 
where the first thing she said to them when they went through the door was, what's this Article 50 thing then? And you're like, how in the name of Christ <laughs> is this something that you still have not understood? They showed just no interest in the subject. That was the real crime. And frankly, he continues to be that way. I understand he's had a good campaign. And yet he's shown no interest in the subject. He is a vacuum right at the heart of the Brexit debate. And he's shown absolutely no capacity to hold the government to account on it, whether it's a minority one or whether it was the previous one with a majority of 17. And in the other direction, I came away quite with, with a lot fonder feelings towards um, people like Nick Clegg um, <laughs> and even, you know, Peter Mandelson. And even the, the somewhat problematic Tony Blair on, <laughs> on this issue. And I don't know if this align, realignment sort of still exists, but there definitely seemed like there was one last summer where a lot of people I know who, who I've always felt tribally Labour, but I, I felt so Remain. I couldn't believe how Remain I felt, perhaps because it had been framed as it's not about the, you know, the economics of it and the detail and your fondness for the European Parliament. But like this culture or you know open versus closed um and i felt you know nativists versus sort of cosmopolitans and i felt so strongly in that direction and i found myself thinking well these people i don't agree with on a lot of things but they seem to be giving some kind of a new sort of moral leadership or at least stating it in a strong way that includes you know ken clark as well and like someone like anna super who i had no opinion of before um and I, it, it seems odd sort of looking back where I suppose the country settled a little bit more back into its usual sort of preferences. But it really did feel like, I mean, do you think that that kind of the leave remain divide, which felt like the new divide in, in, in politics, where is that now that we've got, we're back to a kind of two party system? Does, did, that, did that sort of have a, a long term effect? We, we still got that running through our, our veins. You know, you look at, Right now, there's almost been a complete class switch in the parties. At the moment, the Tories are basically representing predominantly working class voters. They're getting more support from people without university degrees on lower incomes. Labour is supporting people on higher incomes with university degrees, more in the South than in the North. And that is to do with an assumption of what kind of society you want to be in. I mean, this is broad brushstroke stuff. And, and part of me hates it, by the way, because, you know, any conversation you have with someone outside of London in, the, in the, the real world, in capital letters, is always much more complicated than you could ever believe. And they'll be incredibly right wing on capital punishment and incredibly left wing on, you know, tr train nationalization or, or whatever else. But nevertheless, there is something very strange happening in our society that's to do with education. It's to do with age. And it is still in a quite actually, I think, quite dangerous way now to do with class. And that is to do with the open versus closed. It's meshed in with a bunch of other issues, but that's still there. And until we find an accommodation with it, one way of sort of navigating it in a pragmatic way, we're stuck, I think, in this quite dangerous sense that lots of left wing liberal people are suddenly representing middle class class interests rather than those of the working class who they're supposedly supposed to care more about. Before we finish up, some more memories of referendum night. This is comedian Sindhu V. I'm Sindhu V and I'm a comedian. And on the day of referendum, I remember distinctly feeling relieved that I had a UK passport. I'd never really felt a lot of positive relief around this. I'm grateful for it. But as an Indian, I'd always thought I need to have this. It's a utility. Now I was like, oh, I'm so happy I can continue to live with my husband and children. That was a good feeling. Um, and I also worried about visas. I thought, oh, no, no, I'm going to need a visa when I go to Europe. And I, I don't like visa queues. 
you know, and it sort of as when I had my Indian passport, it was hard. You had to stand in queues for hours. And then I had this luxury with the UK passport. And I thought, oh, not again. I, I was stunned. I did not think it would happen. But I sort of, it was the beginning of a number of outcomes politically across the globe that stunned me. But that was my first one, inaugural one. I followed it as long as I could stay up. But I have kids that had to get up for school. The next morning when I woke up, I said to the kids, you know what? I have a UK passport. Your father's a European. He doesn't. So really, it's thanks to me that you're still like, eating breakfast here because if it was just your father, it'd be like, hasta la vista, baby. I just used it as a way for them to be even happier that I'm their mother, basically. That's what I did. Hello, I'm Mark Hooper. I'm the editor of Hole and Corner magazine. This time last year, I was standing like a loon in my dressing gown on my driveway in my house <laughs> in Tunbridge Wells. What? telling a man who'd parked his car up festooned with Brexit banners and Union Jackson <laughs> knocking on his window telling him to move his car off my driveway because I, I was so <laughs> affronted that this bloke was like celebrating in front of my house that the, uh, the Brexit vote had just come in. That was Cindy V and Mark Hooper. So here we are. Uh, despite what I said about how complicated this is and the tides of history and all that, forget all that. If you could go back in the TARDIS and change one thing, what would it be, Peter? I would go back to the final session of the talks between Cameron and the other EU leaders in early 2016 with a warning from the future to Mm. both sides, for goodness sake, you've got to make this renegotiation package better and above all, sell it better. I mean, there was a lot of stuff in there about emergency breaks and so on, stuff that could have actually satisfied a lot of potential Brexit voters. If they only had known what was coming, surely they could have done better. They could have made it a little bit more accommodating to the British demands. But above all, on both sides to sell it, say we have made some serious concessions here. We've listened to worries of a large section of the British public and indeed maybe people in other countries in the EU too and this is a great deal. I wish I'd been more aware for years ahead of it really of things that my friends and and other sort of supporters of the EU had told me of the connection between Euroscepticism and reactionary forces in British politics. I think I was just so complacent of I just sort of felt this idea of Britain is a fundamentally stable country it is a fundamentally decent-minded, open country, and you can afford to have these constitutional conversations of why on earth are these decisions being taken in Brussels on, on lawnmower noise? That's not a suitable location for it to be done, and we need to bring that back. Ultimately, a fairly minor quibble now that we see what the catastrophe is of addressing it. And I wish... This is a hard thing to say because basically it's like saying I wish I'd had less confidence in my country all those years. But the truth is that what my friends told me was right, that it was a vehicle for some really, really pernicious, nasty elements of our national character. And I just wish I'd been more alive to it. It doesn't take away from any of the deficiencies of the EU, but it would have made me less complacent during that campaign, less assumptive towards victory. And I think the country would be in a better place if a lot of us had gone more full throttle in trying to challenge that stuff over the months that were leading up to the vote. I think I would probably have wanted Farage and Banks to win the official designation campaign oh. thing because I do think that there were... There was, a, there was an acceptability um, granted by, you know, Vote Lee. There was also a very, very canny strategist in Dominic Cummings. And I feel like if the unpl- the thing is, because you have these two strands, the kind of reasonable ones, you know, Jolly Boris and, you know, the wonks like Daniel Hannan and whatever, you know, doing their kind of acceptable Brexit. And then you have the kind of nativist, frankly, racist Brexit being promised. And the two worked in tandem. And I think that if 
if if the whole thing had been associated with these reactionary forces, if the people you were constantly seeing at debates and on the news, well, I'm constantly seeing them on the news anyway, but even more attached to it was Nigel Farage, you know, and, and it seemed like this was a UKIP campaign as opposed to something which had kind of broad reach within the Conservative Party. I, I think that would have turned more people off. I would now like to go forward in the TARDIS just to, first of all, to escape the terrible mess. It's not your TARDIS, Peter. You can't just do what you like with it. (laughs) Well, I'd I'd like it all the same. Go forward, let's say, five years, miss out all the terrible things that are about to happen and arrive in this golden future in which, this is my golden future, in which Ruth Davidson is the Conservative Prime Minister, Sadiq Khan is Labour leader, and they have uh, a, a decent debate about sensible things in Parliament, and we've had a nice soft Brexit. Wouldn't that be nice? It would be. Let's hope it happens, or even better, that we can just reverse it altogether. That's a lovely thought to end on. So that's the end of our uh, week off. We'll be back next week, provided Glastonbury doesn't demand its own referendum and sue to join the EU as an independent nation state. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at RomaniacsCast, and you can subscribe to the show via iTunes. Just search for Romaniacs in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. And of course, we'd be glad of a positive star rating from you. It all helps to get the word out. We want to have a lot of stars, just like the EU flag. And don't forget, you can listen again and download at audioboom.com slash channel slash Romaniacs-podcast. And there we are. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week. Adios, camaradas. Adios.